The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, perhaps the most famous passage written by the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read the first four verses. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. So last week we started our exposition of this, really this magnificent passage, and the, uh, the, the text itself, chapter 13, uh, breaks into three parts, and they're very observable. Uh, one through three is the uh, the necessity of love, that's where you have these hypothetical, if I do this and this and don't have love, uh, I'm nothing. It profits me nothing. And, uh, and then four to seven gives us the character or the description of love, which is probably the most famous part. And then eight through 13, Paul talks about the permanence of Christian love. All right. So last week, we, we started... We covered verses 1 and 2, and, and I pointed out that, that what Paul's doing is Paul is um, he's helping the Corinthians see a fatal flaw, not just in their thinking, but in church life. Okay? Because the Corinthians had this idea that um, that the more visible gifts, the more the, spec- the more spectacular the gift, the more spiritual they were. And Paul is reminding them, he did this all throughout chapter 12, that it is the unity of the body that undergirds the diversity of gifts. Okay. In fact, as we went through chapter 12, Uh, I argued repeatedly that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is not about how do you figure out your spiritual gift. It's about the fact that the same spirit is at work in the same body and we're all one even though he works in us in different ways. And those different ways actually uh, don't um, counteract the unity of the body they should strengthen the unity of the body. So when he gets to chapter 13, he he begins to to pose these hypotheticals and he starts with something that would have been known, something that would have been experienced by the Corinthians, and then he escalates it to something that was extraordinary, which would have cause them to just marvel. So his first is, if I speak with the tongues of men, okay? well, this is, this is the Corinthians' favorite gift. It is tongues, it is standing up speaking in tongues, and the minute that Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men, they probably just went, ah, oh, finally, Paul's getting to the, to the good stuff. And then he escalates it, and the tongues of angels, woo, now we're talking, right? I mean, to speak in, the, in different languages of human beings, man, that's one thing supernaturally, but to be speaking the language of heaven, wow, that is some serious spiritual arrival, okay? That is some serious spiritual achievement, to speak with the tongues of of angels. And now, now you have to understand, Paul's not, I don't think for a second that Paul's saying there's an angelic tongue and you should seek after it. 
It's not the point. The point is the tongues of angels is superlative to the tongues of men. And Paul says, even if I do that and don't have love, I've become a... a, a, (laughs) Remember how we translated this last week? An empty, noisy vase, right? So they like a this um, empty vessel that would project the sound, and it's just noise. It's probably not an accident that he's that the reference that he's making is to this empty vessel, because if you have love, or if you don't have love, and you're doing these really really spectacular gifts, you're just an empty, noisy thing, all right? So it become a, we say noisy gong. I, I told you I didn't, didn't think that was right. Then clanging cymbal, right? So this, this cacophony, this, this chaotic sound, right? Just clashing and, and uh, really not uh, doing anything other than being irritating, right? So, I mean, how many, <laughs> there, are certain, there are certain noises we don't like, right? We talked about this last week, and I'm really proud of you because nobody's, yeah, Jim, you crinkle that water bottle, and we're going to have serious problems. But, uh, you know, there are just things, and, and that's, that's the idea that Paul's getting at, is you could be speaking with the tongues of angels. You could be speaking the language of heaven. And if you don't have love, you're just a three-year-old with a set of symbols. And it doesn't make any sense, and it accomplishes nothing. Then he moved to, in verse 2, so if I have prophecy, and again, you could imagine the Corinthians, ah, prophecy, we love prophecy. Well, we at least like prophecy when it's the kind of prophecy we like. Okay. If I have prophecy, and then notice this, and then know all mysteries... Okay, so in reality, who knows all mysteries? Okay, well, God, yeah. So that's that's a given. Okay, so in the church, who knows all mysteries? Nobody, right? So this is, again, this is hypothetical. It's escalating to the next level that is uh, uh, extraordinary. So if I have if I know all mysteries and all knowledge, who has all knowledge? The answer is nobody. And if I have all faith, who has all faith? The answer is nobody. But this is the kind of all faith where it's not just the faith that moves a mountain. It's the kind of faith that moves an entire mountain range. And Paul says, you can have all of that. And of course, nobody does. You can have all of that. And if you don't have love, You're nothing. Now, we pointed this out last week, and it's important to reiterate, is Paul is making a judgment on the value of personhood. He doesn't just say, you don't get a reward. He doesn't say, he says, I'm nothing. Zero without love. Okay. So I can do all this impressive spiritual gift stuff. If I don't have love, it amounts to nothing. And even more, I amount to nothing. Okay. Now, um, that brings us to verse 3. Now, you know, there, there are certain things I can't help myself. Right, you know that, right? So this is an example of one of those things I just can't help myself. So verse 3 says, and by the way, if your translation sounds different than this, just to kind of like mildly raise your hand. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I deliver my body to be burned... Everybody have burned? Okay. Hmm. But do not have love. It profits me nothing. Now, um, 
So first of all, Paul now gets to the next hypothetical. So if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, if I have all knowledge, prophecy, etc. Now, if it's if I dole out, if I distribute all of my possessions. How many of the Corinthians do you think actually had done that? <laughs> yeah, this probably wasn't like one of the one of the, the 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 signs of the Corinthians discipleship, right? But does Jesus talk like this? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Mark ten twenty one, he looks on the rich young ruler and loves him and says, one thing you lack, sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, follow me and you'll have eternal life. Okay? Wow. Sell all your possessions, right? Give to the poor, follow me. Jesus says uh, the same thing in Luke 14 after one of the... Um, one of really one of the strongest calls to discipleship in in all of the gospels and the final part of that call to discipleship is sell all your possessions follow me right so we could talk about that but understand i think that there's a there's an element where um in jesus call he's calling us to really, to give all that we are for him, for his cause, for his service. Now, immediately, because we have a lot of stuff, we kind of try to figure out how that doesn't mean exactly what it sounds like it means, all right? I mean, this is, this is just the way that we do Bible interpretation sometimes, okay? Now, we, of course, know that there were other situations where Jesus didn't require uh, somebody to sell absolutely everything, right? So remember in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. Hey, Zacchaeus was actually ripping people off as a tax collector. And Zacchaeus comes under conviction and he says, uh, Lord, I will, uh, if I've cheated anyone, and everybody's like, yeah, ha ha, if you cheated anyone. If I've cheated anyone, I'll repay them fourfold, Right? And then Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, well, that's not enough. Because I told the rich young ruler he had to sell everything. He actually turns around and says, salvation has come to your house. All right. So I, I think that we have to understand this call to give up uh, our possessions um, within the context of other passages. But notice what Paul's saying. So if I am, this is how we could put it. If I am super disciple, if I'm the one that actually takes the call that Jesus gave to sell everything and I go and I liquidate absolutely everything that I own in order to feed the poor and to clothe the naked, in other words, uh, I have actually heeded the call to ultimate discipleship, then there's this next line. And if I give my body. Okay. Now, notice I stopped there. And if I give my body. New American Standard says to be burned. Okay. All right. So, I said I couldn't help myself. We're going to do a little exercise. In textual criticism. All right? So, 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, to be burned or to boast. Those are the two options. Okay? The text can read, if I give over my body to be burned, but there's also a variant reading that says, if I give over my body so that I may boast. All right? So, if you have the New American Standard, oh, I'm pushing the wrong button. Okay, I'm pushing the wrong button too fast. Okay, so uh, King James, New King James also, by the way, RSV, NAS, and ESV. I'm assuming most everybody has an NAS or an ESV. Um, if I surrender my body to be burned. So those translations follow 
to be burned. All right? Uh, NIV, you're probably say, thinking already, oh, well, it's obviously wrong if the NIV does it that way. That's not true. New RSV, okay, which is the new version of that version. So the old version goes that way. The new version goes that way. Net, New English Translation. And then the Christian Standard Bible, if I give over my body that I may boast. So you have two readings, okay? Now, just in case you were getting a little excited, now I'm going to bore you to tears, okay? So here's the external evidence for boast, okay? External evidence means which manuscripts read which way, all right? Tracking with me? P46, and you say, of course, yay, let's hear it for P46, because P46 is awesome, okay? P46 is the Chester Beatty text that is at the latest AD 200, and it contains the complete Pauline corpus. It's amazing, all right? So it reads boast. What's significant about P46? It's the earliest of Paul's manuscripts that we have, the earliest by far. Uh, That should be a little Hebrew Aleph, which is Codex Sinaiticus. A is Alexandrinus. B is Vaticanus. And if you have those manuscripts with the reading boast, that's as good as it gets. Okay? Okay? These are the earliest. These are the most complete, and the external evidence for this reading is both early and weighty, okay? So, when we talk about external evidence, we're talking about looking at manuscripts, weighing manuscripts. These manuscripts weigh a lot, okay? So, if I was to give an external evidence grade for this, it would be a straight A, all right? Now, over here, C is Ephraim, D is Beza, F is I forget. What's F, Jason? Do you remember F? Anyway, um, G, uh, and then you've got these numbers. These are later Byzantine texts. Now, let me just say that the manuscript evidence for burn is not bad, okay? But not bad is not the same as early and weighty, okay? Now, C, Ephraim, is actually about the same time frame as B over there, all right? But anyway, so if I were to give a grade for external evidence for burn, it would be a B minus, okay? You guys, are we, everybody okay? We're tracking, okay? All right, so, because I want to know whether Paul's saying, if I give my body so I can boast, or I give my body to be burned, that I may be burned, all right? So, I want to know. Um, Plus, this is absolutely fascinating to me, and if it's not to you, I'm sorry, but I'm the one teaching, all right? Okay, so, internal evidence. So, external evidence is just manuscript evidence. Internal evidence is how you actually make decisions based on the texts themselves, all right? So, here uh, here are three things to think about. First, the harder, more difficult reading is typically preferred, okay? You have two readings. Internal evidence says typically the harder reading is to be preferred. Does anybody know why, except for the, the Greek students? Anybody know why the harder reading is typically preferred? Bob. Okay, so I wouldn't say water things down, but you're on the right track. The tendency is to simplify or clarify, not obfuscate, okay? Not muddy up, okay? So the harder reading... More difficult reading is generally preferred. So, what's the harder reading? That I may be burned 
or that I may boast. Boast is the harder reading. You understand what I mean by harder reading? It makes less sense on the face of it than burned. All right? Next, the reading which explains the others is to be preferred. Okay? In other words, you're looking at the origin. Uh, what, 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 ex- what reading best explains the origin of the other readings? Okay? So... Take yourself back to, let's say, the 4th century. There you are, you're a scribe, you're uh, copying a manuscript, and um, does burned explain how boast got in, or does boast explain how burn got in? This one's probably a little more, um, let's say, challenging. It is easier for us to say, I can see why a scribe would put boast if it was burn, but I can't see why a scribe would put, no, I said it backwards. I cannot see why a scribe, if he's looking at burn, would change it to boast. But I can see why a scribe would look at boast and change it to burn. By the way, the difference in those two words is one letter. So in other words, I have an easier way of explaining the origin of burn than I do boast. Okay, that makes sense? If it doesn't, just hold on. Uh, harmonization, which may explain the reading. Now, what is a harmonization? What's that? Okay, I can barely hear you. I'm old. Okay, it removes tension from the text. So you know where you see most harmonizations? In variant readings, in the Synoptic Gospels. Right? So you have one text that says this one, this kind only comes out with prayer, and then over here, uh, is the other Synoptic reads, uh, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting, and then guess what you end up having? You end up having a whole bunch of readings over here later that all read what? Prayer and fasting, okay? This is trying to harmonize, okay? So there is no parallel in a sense to that I give my body that I may be burned. Um, but could there be a biblical parallel to having your body burned? The answer is yes. Does anybody want to venture a guess as to burning bodies? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Okay. Now, does that seem a little bit of a stretch that that might be a parallel Paul's making? Yeah, it does. Could there be historical parallels that may lead scribes to write burn? The answer is yes, because, by the way, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians around 54, 55, guess how many Christians had been burned? Zero. Within... 10 to 12 years after he writes 1 Corinthians, guess who's burning Christians all over the place? Nero. So here you are as a scribe, and it seems more natural to make the parallel with the martyrdom that's happening that everybody knows about. Okay? Okay, so... So in, in my estimation... So let's see, we'll press on here. Okay, I don't know if you can read this or not. So... The the big question is, why 
if, if all of this evidence is really good for boast, why do so many of our translations stick with burn? Okay. Well, one, translation traditions are hard to escape. you do understand that the King James Bible still has much sway over the way we do English translations. I was just talking to Nathan about this, just maybe a couple weeks ago, right? Where, think of Psalm 23. How many people want to dink with, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Even though to a 21st century person hearing the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, sounds like I don't want the Lord as my shepherd. And that, of course, is not what it means. But translational traditions die hard. And so guess what the King James reads? Give my body that I may be burned, right? So you get this this um, translational tradition that is uh, hanging on in spite of the evidence. So what do you do as, as, a, as a lay person reading your Bible? Well, let me just give... So first of all, pay attention to variant readings. Okay. Now, I don't know, I didn't look, but in the NAS or the ESV, do they have boast as a marginal reading? Okay, so first of all, pay attention to the variant readings, okay? Second, compare translations, okay? If you see um, a marginal reading that's a variant reading, all right, pull three or four other translations off your shelf or bring them up on your computer and compare, all right? and kind of see what's going on, and then three, try to determine the better reading on the external and internal evidence. Now, I don't mean by that uh, become a textual scholar and, and keep and uh, memorize what manuscripts and codices were done in what centuries, all right? What I mean is, I think this is probably all that, um, all that a, a really a layperson needs to do, uh, make responsible choices, okay? Um, One, so we have intrinsic probability and transcriptional probability. This is stuff that that you can do just reading your English Bible. So intrinsic probabilities, author's tendencies. So style, okay? Do the New Testament writers have a style? Absolutely. If you read your Bible enough, guess what you start to pick up? Their style, right? So style does play into into readings in terms of intrinsic evidence. I'll give you a perfect example if you you want one. Uh, So there's a famous textual variant in Romans 5.1, and it goes like this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The other reading, by the way, it's just a difference of one letter that changes the the mood of the verb. The other reading is, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So stylistically and, by the way, in terms of theology, what is more Pauline? You've been justified, therefore you should have peace with God, or you've been justified and you have peace with God. You have peace with God. That's Pauline, right? Paul's not telling you you've been justified, now strive to have peace with God. If you understand what he's talking about when he talks about justification, you understand you already have peace with God. So you got style, you have theology, uh, you have literary flow, okay? Um, That's important. Uh, And then, of course, the uh, ever-famous other factors. All right. So then the next is transcriptional probability. So this is, this is, you're looking at a reading, all right, and 
Transcriptional probability has to do with not what the author would do, but what a scribe might do. First, the shorter reading is generally preferred. You know why? What's that? Yeah, no, especially if they were, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a good guess, but uh, not exactly. Um, why is the shorter reading generally preferred? No? No? Mm, I think you might be on to something there. What is a scribe more likely to do? Leave out or add? Add. Why? Explain. To explain. To make something that he thinks is unclear more clear. So the longer readings are typically scribal additions. The shorter readings are generally preferred. So um, think about the longer ending of Mark. Okay? That's actually a real classic example of the shorter reading being preferred. But this goes, uh, and this is a fairly consistent rule. Okay, in other words, you're just you're thinking about what a scribe most naturally would have done. Okay, is a scribe going to say, um, uh, "Oh, look at that! He mentions the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus." I think I'll leave that part out. No, in fact, he's typically going to repeat or add words to help explain. That's the tendency. Okay. Um, Second, the harder reading, which we already talked about, except in nonsense readings. You know what a nonsense reading is? A nonsense reading would be a reading that is, ready? Nonsense. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2 is a great example. Paul says, we became napioi among you. We became gentle among you. Well, hapioi is horses. And there's a textual variant that reads, Hapioi. Well, obviously, it's a spelling error because Paul's not saying we became horses among you. That's a, that's a nonsense reading, all right? So nonsense readings are technically the harder reading, but they are disqualified. And then, whoops, 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 whoops. Hey, Will Robertson, where are you? Okay, well, anyway, I can tell you what the last one was, maybe. Did you see what the last one was? All right, well, whatever the last one was, what's the last one, Roger? You're looking right at it. Deaf elders and blind deacons. (laughs) Okay, yeah, the reading that best explains the origin. So, again, you're asking yourself, um, if this was the reading, original reading, then how does that explain how this reading came into existence, right? Vice versa, okay? All right, so all of that to say, I am 93% certain that it reads, I give my body that I may boast. Now, you go from, you understand there's a difference between the job of the textual critic who is trying to determine the original wording and then the job of the exegete who has to then interpret. Okay? What's easier to interpret? Give my body to be burned, right? Mar- give myself to martyrdom. That's clearly, right? Well, guess what? Give my body that I may boast is not quite so simple. So, isn't this fun? So let me just walk you through this. In Paul, this is going to test your, your knowledge of Paul. In Paul, first question, does Paul speak about boasting? 
Yes. A lot or a little? A lot. Okay. So, second question. For Paul, is boasting good or bad? Both. Okay? Both. It depends completely on context (laughs) or who you're boasting in, right? Which we're going to pick up from the context. So, there are times where Paul speaks about boasting. He's going to say in just a few minutes, love doesn't boast right? So, love doesn't brag on oneself, okay? Now, how does Paul use boasting in a positive way? Well, if you think of a different word than boast, you could think of the word uh, to glory, okay? To glory in something, all right? And that's a totally legitimate way to translate the idea of to boast. And so, Paul can speak about boasting in the Lord, Paul can speak about um, boasting um, actually even in converts like the Thessalonians, okay? Right. Now, do you think that means bragging? Hey, God, look at these people I won to Jesus, right? That's not what he's talking about, glorying in what God accomplished through him, Right? There is also um, uh, the idea of uh, what you would call uh, an eschatological or future or last day boast, right? Where you are, where you are glorying in what God has accomplished in you and through you for His glory, right? This is how Paul used it in Philippians two sixteen, for instance. So. So what appears at first to actually be a really hard reading, I don't think is nearly as hard as we might make it out to be. So in other words, I think that what Paul's saying is, if I give all of my possessions, that is all that I own, and then give my body, that is all that I am, we'll talk about what that means in a second, in order that I may glory in the last day. Does that make sense? The answer is yes. That makes sense. In other words, if I, so give my body, uh, that could be a a few different things. Paul could be talking about maybe giving himself, uh, selling himself into slavery to give the proceeds to the poor. It could be something more generic in the sense of Uh, the ultimate self-sacrifice, laying down your life for others, right? So if I give my body, so give all my possessions, give what I have, and then give myself in totality so that I could glory on the last day. Okay. By the way, that's fairly consistent with Paul's view of glorying or boasting. Okay? So it's not like all of a sudden you're going, what's Paul talking about? He never talks about boasting. No, he talks about boasting all the time, and it actually makes perfect sense. And so then here's his point. If I do that, if I give everything that I have and give everything that I am in order to be able to glory in the last day and I don't have love, there's no profit in it. By the way, the idea of boasting or glorying, positively put, would be the idea of of even reaping the reward of a life of service. Does God reward his people for a life of service? Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he rewards them with, with the increase of joy and the, and the increased capacity for joy. And there's this idea of, of God 
um, blessing his people for uh, for the lives that they've lived, and 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 so that that is that is not a foreign concept in the New Testament. And here's what Paul's saying: so if I give absolutely everything that I am for the cause, so to speak, so that I'm able to just glory in the last day, but if I don't have love, then I'm not going to profit anything from giving everything away and giving away all that I am. It's really actually powerful when you think about what he's saying. Think of missionaries who have given absolutely everything for the cause of Christ. You can think of so many that Adoniram Judson, John G. Payton, William Carey, I mean, the list is, is, is endless. Of those that let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, Paul says, You can lay down your life for Africa. And if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. You can give up absolutely everything. So let's, let's bring it right into, into a close to home for us. You can, you can give your all and more for the cause of life. And if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. You can lay down your life for your children and do the very best that you can do for each and every one of them. And if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. In other words... A selfless sacrifice without love equals nothing. Buddhist Buddhist monks sacrifice all worldly possession for what? What does it profit them? Oh, well, this, this actually... So these first three verses, I want to say, um, explode another evangelical myth, and that's the nature of love. Okay? So, Ray and Julie, what song did you play at your wedding? <laughs> yeah, so Ray, being, Ray and Julie being as romantic as they are, uh, I think, was that Steve Camp or uh, uh, Don Francisco? Yeah, so they had a song played at their wedding. Love is not a feeling. <laughs> I don't even know if I could have kept a straight face if I'd have done your wedding, right? I'd have only been like four, but uh, I don't know that I could have actually watched you two look at each other. I mean, what, did you like look at each other like Prussian drill instructors uh, I mean, I don't understand how this works. So, but it, but here's 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 the evangelical myth. So, love is not a feeling. Love is simply action. It's simply willing. Love is strictly doing. Right. This is what we hear. Okay, agape love is just a disinterested, selfless. Love. You know what I want to say? I want to say absolute, utter, complete nonsense. Okay? Nonsense. The kind of love that we hold up and say, this is what love is. Love, not to pick on you guys, but love is not a feeling. Love doesn't have anything to do with the affections. It's disinterested, selfless action. Paul says, you can do disinterested, selfless action and not have love. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? You can be doing the very stuff that we say, right? So even, um, even the idea of, well, I don't kind of feel this on the inside, but I just do it anyway. Paul says, yeah, and that kind of thing profits you nothing, right? So we're going to see next week that all of these descriptions of love are in verb form. So love is action for sure, right? But love is never the idea of just dis interested, selfless action on behalf of somebody else. It can't be. Or 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3 doesn't make any sense. You hear about somebody that gives up everything, sells all their possessions, gets on a boat, goes to goes to India and lays down their life for the gospel, and you know what we automatically think? We automatically think, ah, there's, that's love. Paul says, you can do that without love. Okay. Right? So... If I say to Ariel, hey, so uh, we're going to go stay in a really nice uh, hotel. We're going to go to your favorite restaurant, and, um, and we're going to go do your, your favorite thing. We're going to go to a Giants game. Okay. <laughs> And, um, which by the way, I made all those arrangements today, right? And let's say we have just this magnificent time together. And I look at her and she says, thank you so much. I feel so loved. I said, well, of course you feel loved. I just performed husbandly duties. I did the right things. What is she going to want to know? Why, why did you do the right thing? What do I, what happens, not in terms of my marriage, but maybe, if I just say, I did the right things because they were the right things to do. And then she says, maybe we should have had love is not a feeling at our wedding. Do <laughs> right? you, you see what I'm getting at? You can do duty, and you can do the right things, but if you only do the right things because they're the right things, and you don't have love, There's nothing beautiful, powerful, compelling, or glorifying to God in the right things. God looks at the affections of the heart. So let's, let's really tread on thin ice here. You lay down your life for your kids. You do all the right things. And you homeschool and you take them to church and you do family worship and you don't let them eat Skittles and you do all the right stuff. But if there is not an affectional and God-driven motivational love, it profits nothing. 
This is Paul's point. You can do the right stuff, and without love, it means nothing. So, one thing that we're going to be struggling with through this whole thing is we talk about love Love patiently endures, and love does kindness, and all of that. We're going to be constantly doing this. We're going to be constantly saying, okay, how do I do that? You know, modern evangelicals are addicted to give me applicatory steps so I know how to be patient. And so then the... blockhead preacher says, here are seven steps to patience. Huh. Helpful? No. No. Seven steps on how to be patient will not help you be patient. Patience is a characteristic of love. And so you have to have love in order to wait patiently. So the question is not going to be, can I get six points of application on how to be patient, or can you give me some helpful hints on how to be kind? It's going to be this. How can my heart be captivated by the love of God in Christ for me in such a way that that love in me grows and is manifested in patience and kindness and not bragging and not being jealous? What we're talking about is not steps. What we're talking about is a transformation that only the Holy Spirit can do. Right? And so, I'm not going to give you helpful hints. Hopefully, I'll give you practical things. But there aren't seven steps. It's being transformed by the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, which he has already poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, we know that it goes against much of our grain by nature and even by church culture. But we pray that you would transform us through the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that we would grow in love and in the bonds of love as we proceed through this passage. Sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.